Chapter 1 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Rye. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 1 Prep School Days. To every man, there comes a moment that marks the turning point in his career. For me, it was a certain Saturday morning in the autumn of 1891. As I look back upon it across the years, I feel something of the same thrill that stirred my boyish blood that day, and opened a door through which I looked into a new world. I had just come to the city, a country boy, from my home in Lyle, New York, to attend the Horace Mann School. As I walked across Madison Square, I glanced toward the old Fifth Avenue Hotel, where my eyes fell upon the scene depicted in the accompanying picture. Almost before I was aware of it, my curiosity led me to mingle with the crowd surging in and out of the hotel and I learned by questioning the bystanders that it was the headquarters of the Yale team, which that afternoon was to play Princeton at the Polo Grounds. The players were about to leave the hotel for the field, and I hurried inside to catch a glimpse of them. The air was charged with enthusiasm, and I soon caught the infection, although it was all new to me then, of the vital power of college spirit which later so completely dominated my life. I recall with vividness how I lingered and waited for something to happen. Men were standing in groups, and all eyes were centered upon the heroes of the team. Everyone was talking football. Some of the names heard then have never been forgotten by me. There was the giant Helfelfinger, whom everyone seemed anxious to meet. I was told that he was the crack Yale guard. I looked at him, and then and there, I joined the hero worshippers. I also remember Lee LeClung, the Yale captain, who seemed to realize the responsibilities that rested upon his shoulders. There was an air of restraint about him. In later years, he became treasurer of the United States, and his signature was upon the country's currency. My most vivid recollection of him will be, however, as he stood there that day in the corridor of the famous old hotel on the day of the great football conflict with Princeton. Then Sanford was pointed out to me, the Yale center rush. I recall his eagerness to get out to the bus and be on his way to the field. When the starting signal was given by the captain, Sanford's huge form was in the front rank of the crowd that poured out upon the sidewalk. The whole scene was intensely thrilling to me, and I did not leave until the last player had entered the bus and it drove off. Crowds of Yale men and spectators gave the players cheer after cheer as they rolled away. The flags with which the bus was decorated waved in the breeze, and I watched them with indescribable fascination until they were out of sight. The noise made by the Yale students I learned afterwards was college cheering, and college cheers, once heard by a boy, are never forgotten. Many in that throng were going to the game. I could not go, but the scene that I had just witnessed gave me an inspiration. It stirred something within me, and down deep in my soul there was born a desire to go to college. I made my way directly to the YMCA gymnasium, then at the corner of 4th Avenue and 23rd Street. Athletics had for me a greater attraction than ever before, and from that day I applied myself with increased enthusiasm to the work of the gymnasium. The following autumn I entered St. John's Military Academy at Manlius, New York, a short distance from my old home. I was only 17 years of age and weighed 217 pounds. Former Adjutant General William Verbeck, then Colonel Verbeck, was headmaster. Before I was fairly settled in my room, the colonel had drafted me as a candidate for the football team. I wanted to try for the team, and was as eager to make it as he evidently was to have me make it. But I did not have any football togs, and the supply at the school did not contain any large enough. So I had to have some built for me. The day they arrived, much to my disappointment, I found the trousers were made of white canvas. 
Their newness was appalling, and I pictured myself in them with feelings of dismay. I robbed them of their whiteness that night by mopping up a lot of mud with them behind the gymnasium. When they had dried, by morning, they looked like a pair of real football trousers. George Reddington of Yale was our football coach. He was full of contagious fire. Reddington seemed interested in me and gave me much individual coaching. Colonel Verbeck matched him in love of the game. He not only believed in athletics, but he played at the end of the second team, and it was pretty difficult for the boys to get the best of him. They made an unusual effort to put the colonel out of the plays, but try as hard as they might, he generally came out on top. The result was a decided increase in the spirit of the game. We had one of the best preparatory schools in that locality, but owing to our distance from the larger preparatory schools, we were forced to play Syracuse, Hobart, Hamilton, Rochester, Colgate, and Casanova Seminary, all of whom we defeated. We also played against the Syracuse Athletic Association, whose team was composed of professional athletes as well as former college players. Bert Hansen, who had been a great center at Yale, was one of this team. Old Yale Heroes, Lee McClung's team. Recalling the men who played on our St. John's team, I am confident that if all of them had gone to college, most of them would have made the varsity. In fact, some did. It was decided that I should go to Lawrenceville School en route to Princeton. It was on the trip from Trenton to Lawrenceville in the big stagecoach loaded with boys, I got my first dose of homesickness. The prospect of new surroundings made me yearn for St. John's. The blue hour of boyhood, however, is a brief one. I was soon engaged in conversation with a little fellow who was sitting beside me and who began discussing the ever-popular subject of football. He was very inquisitive and wanted to know if I had ever played the game and if I was going to try for the team. He told me about the great game Lawrenceville played with the Princeton University the year before when Lawrenceville scored six points before Princeton realized what they were really up against. He fascinated me by his graphic description. There was a glowing account of the playing of Gary Cochran, the great captain of the Lawrenceville team who had just graduated and gone to Princeton, together with Sport Armstrong, the giant tackle. These men were sure to live in Lawrenceville's history, if for nothing else than the part they played in that notable game, although Princeton rallied and won 8-6. to six. It was not long before I learned that my newly made friend was Billy McGibbon, a member of the Lawrenceville baseball team. Just wait until you see Charlie DeSalt and Billy Dibble play behind the line, he went on, and from that moment I began to be a part of the new life, the threshold of which I was crossing. Strangely enough, the memory of getting settled in my new quarters faded with the eventful moment when the call for candidates came, and I went out with the rest of the boys to try for the team. Competition was keen, and many candidates offered themselves. I was placed on the scrub team. One of my first attempts for supremacy was in the early part of the season when I was placed as right guard of the scrub against Perry Wentz, an old star player of the school and absolutely sure of his position. I recall how on several occasions the first team could not gain as much distance through the second as the men desired, and Wentz, who later on distinguished himself on the varsity at Princeton and still later as a crack player on Pennsylvania, seemed to have trouble in opening up my position. Max Rudder, the Lawrenceville captain, with the directness that usually characterizes such officers, called this fact to Wentz's attention. Wentz, who probably felt naturally his pride of football fame, became quite angry at Rudder's remark that he was being outplayed. He took off his nose guard, threw it on the ground, and left the field. Rudder moved me over to the first team in Wentz's place. That night there was a general upset on the team, which was settled amicably, however, and the next day Wentz continued playing in his old place. The position of guard was given to me on the other side of the line. 
George Cadwallader being moved out of the position of tackle. This was the same Cadwallader who subsequently went to Yale and made a great name for himself on the gridiron, in spite of the fact that he remained at New Haven but one year. It was here at Lawrenceville that this great player made his reputation as a goal kicker, a fame that was enhanced during his football days at Yale. Max Rudder, the captain of the Lawrenceville team, went to Williams and played on the varsity, eventually becoming captain there also. Ned Moffat, nephew of Princeton's great Alex Moffat, played end rush. About this time, I began to realize that Billy McGibbon had given me a correct line on Charlie DeSaw and Billy Dibble. These two players worked wonderfully well together and were an effective scoring machine with the assistance of Doc McNider and Dave Davis. During these days at Lawrenceville, Owen Johnson gathered the material for those interesting stories in which he used his old schoolmates for the characters. The thin disguise of Doc McNuder does not, however, conceal Doc McNider from his old schoolboy friends. The same is true of the slightly changed names of Gary Cochran, Turk Ryder, Charlie DeSaul, and Billy Dibble. Charlie DeSaul, after graduation, went to Yale and continued his wonderful, spectacular career on the gridiron. We will spend an afternoon with him on the Yale field later. Billy Dibble went to Williams and played a marvelous game until he was injured early in his freshman year. It was during those days that I met Gary Cochran, Sport Armstrong, and other Princeton coaches for the first time. They used to come over to assist in coaching our team. Our regular coaches at Lawrenceville were Walter B. Street, who had been a famous football star years before at Williams, and William J. George, renowned in Princeton football history as a center rush. I cannot praise the work of these men too highly. They are thoroughbreds in every sense of the word. It was one of the old traditions of Lawrenceville football to have a game every year with Pennington Seminary. What man is there who attended either school who does not recall the spirit of these old-time contests? The Hill School was another of our football rivals. The trip to Pottstown, Pennsylvania was an event eagerly looked forward to. So also was the Hill School's return game at Lawrenceville. The rivalry between the two schools was keen. Everything possible was done at the Hill School to make our visit a pleasant one. The score of 28-0, by which Lawrenceville won the game that year, made it especially pleasant. As I recall that trip, two men stand out in my memory. One was John Meigs, the headmaster. The other was Mike Sweeney, the trainer and athletic director. They were the two central figures of Hill School traditions. Interest in football was emphasized at that time by the approaching game with Andover at Lawrenceville. This was the first time that these two teams had ever played. Andover was probably more renowned in football annals than any school Lawrenceville had played up to this time. The Lawrenceville coaches realized that the game would be a strenuous one. After a conference, the two coaches decided that it would be wise to see Andover play at Andover the week before we were to play them. Accordingly, Mr. George went to Andover, and when he returned, he gathered the team around him in one of the recitation halls and described carefully the offense and defense of our coming opponents. He also demonstrated with checkers what each man did in every play and placed emphasis on the work of Eddie Holt, who was acting captain of the Andover team. To represent Holt's giant build, he placed one checker on top of another, saying, as I remember with great seriousness, This topped checker represents Holt. He must be taken care of, and it will require two Lawrenceville men to stop him on every play. I am certain of this, for Holt was a marvel last Saturday. During the week, we drilled secretly and most earnestly in anticipation of defeating Andover. The game attracted an unusually large number of spectators. Lawrenceville made it a gala day for its alumni, and all the old Andover and Lawrenceville boys who could get there witnessed the game. 
When the Andover team ran out upon the field, we were all anxious to see how big Holt loomed up. He certainly was a giant and towered high above the other members of his team. Soon the whistle blew and the trouble was on. In memory now, I can see Billy Dibble circling Andover's end for 25 yards, scoring a touchdown amid tremendous excitement. This all transpired during the first minute and a half of play. Emerson once said, we live by moments, and the first minute and a half of that game must stand out as one of the eventful periods in the life of every man who recalls that day of play. No grown-up schoolboy can fail to appreciate the scene or miss the wave of boyish enthusiasm that rolled over the field at this unlooked-for beginning of a memorable game between schoolboys. We beat Andover. This wonderful start of the Lawrenceville team was a goading spur to its opponents. Johnny Barnes, an ex-Lawrenceville boy now quarterback on the Andover team, seemed fairly inspired as he urged his team on. Eddie Holt was called upon time and again. He was making strong advances aided by French, Hine, and Porter. Together they worked out a touchdown, but Lawrenceville rallied and for the rest of the game their teamwork was masterly. Bat Gear, who was later a Princeton varsity player, Charlie DeSalle and Billy Dibble each scored touchdowns, making three altogether for their school. Thus Lawrenceville, with a score of 20-6, stepped forth into a new era and entered the larger football world where she was to remain and increase her heroic accomplishments in after years. It is needless to say that the night following this victory was a crowning one in our preparatory football experiences. Bonfires were lighted, speeches were the order of the hour, and members of the team were the guests of honor at a banquet in the upper house. There was no rowdy revelry by night to spoil the memory of the occasion. It was just one simple, fine, and fitting celebration of a wholesome school victory on the field of football. Last year at Lawrenceville. It was up to Billy Dibble, the new captain, to bring about another championship. We were to play Andover a return game there. Captain Dibble was left with but three of last year's team as a foundation to build on. Dibble's team made a wonderful record. He was a splendid example for the team to follow, and his playing, his enthusiasm, and earnest efforts contributed much toward the winning of the Andover, Princeton, Freshman, and Hill School games. There appeared at Lawrenceville a new coach who assisted Street and George. He was none other than the famous Princeton halfback Douglas Ward, whose record as an honored man in the classroom, as well as on the football field, was well known to all of us, and had stood out among college athletes as a wonderful example. He was very modest. I recall that someone once asked him how he made the only touchdown against Yale in the 93 game. His reply was, oh, somebody just pushed me over. Fresh in my memory is the wonderful trip that we boys made to Andover. We were proud of the fact that the Colonial Express was especially ordered to stop at Trenton for us, and as we took our seats in the Pullman car, we realized that our long-looked-for expedition had really begun. We had a great deal of fun on the trip to Boston. Good old George Cadwallader was the center of most of the jokes. His 215 pounds added to the discomfort of a pair of pointed patent leather shoes, which were far too small for him. As soon as he was settled into the train, he removed them and dozed off to sleep. Turk Ryder and some of the other fun makers tied the shoestrings together and hung them out the window, where they blew noisily against the window pane. When we arrived in Jersey City, it was a big treat for us to see our train put aboard the ferry boat of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, and as we sailed down the bay, up the East River, and under the Brooklyn Bridge to the New Haven docks, it all seemed very big and wonderful. When the train stopped at New Haven, we were met by the Yale Lawrenceville men, who wished us the best of luck, some of them making the trip with us to Boston. 
When we arrived in Andover the next day, I had the satisfaction of seeing my brother and cousin, who were at the time attending Andover Academy. The hospitality that was accorded the Andover team while at Lawrenceville the year before was repaid in royal fashion. We had ample time to view the grounds and buildings and grow keen in anticipation and interest in the afternoon's contest. When the whistle blew, we were there for business. My personal opponent was a fellow named Hillebrand, who besides being a football player was Andover's star pitcher. Later on we became the best of friends and side partners on the Princeton team and often spoke of our first meeting when we played against each other. Hillebrand was one of the greatest athletes Andover ever turned out. Lawrenceville defeated Andover in one of the hardest and most exciting of all prep school contests, one that was uncertain from beginning to end. Billy Dibble played the star game of the day, and after eight minutes he scored a touchdown. Cadwallader booted the ball over the goal, and the score was 6-0. to zero. The Lawrenceville backfield, made up of Powell, Dave Davis, Cap Kafer, and Dibble, worked wonderfully well. Kafer did some excellent punting against his remarkable opponent, Barker, who seemed to be as expert as he. The efficient work of Hillebrand and of Chadwell, the colored inrush, stands out preeminently. The latter player developed into one of the best inrushes that ever played at Williams. Goodwin, Barker, and Greenway contributed much to Andover's good play. Jim Greenway is one of the famous Greenway boys whose athletic history at Yale is a matter of record. A few minutes later, the Andover crowd were aroused by Goodwin making the longest run of the game, 55 yards, scoring Andover's first touchdown and making the score 6-6. Six there was great speculation as to which team would win the game, but Billy Dibble, aided by the wonderful interference on the part of Babe Eddy, who afterward played end on the Yale team, and Emerson, who, had he gone to college, would have been a wonder, made a touchdown. George Cadwallader, with his sure foot, made the score 12-6. to Enthusiasm was at its height. Andover rooters were calling upon their team to tie the score. A touchdown and goal would mean a tie. The Andover team seemed to answer the call, for soon Goodwin scored a touchdown, making the score 12-10. to And Butterfield, Andover's right halfback, was put to the test amidst great excitement. The ball went just to the side of the goalpost, and Lawrenceville had won 12-10. to Great is the thrill of a victory won on an opponent's field. That night after dinner, as I was sitting in my brother's room with some of his Andover friends, there was a yell from outside and a loud knock on the door. In walked a big fellow wearing a blue sweater. Through his open coat, one could observe the big white letter A. It proved to be none other than Doc Hillebrand. Without one word of comment, he walked over to where I was sitting and said, Edwards, what was the score of the game today? I could not get the idea at all. I said, why, you ought to know. He replied, 12 to 10, and turning on his heel, left the room. This caused a good deal of amusement, but it was soon explained that Hillebrand was being initiated into a secret society and that this was one of the initiation stunts. It was a wonderfully happy trip back to Lawrenceville. The spirit ran high. It was then that Turk Ryder wrote the well-known Lawrenceville verse, which we sang again and again. Cap kicked, Barker kicked. Cap, he got the best of it. They both kicked together, but Cap kicked very hard. Bill ran, Dave ran, then Andover lost her grip. She also lost her championship. Sis, boom, ah. As we were about two miles outside of Lawrenceville, we saw a massive light in the roadway, and when we heard the boys yelling at the top of their voices, we realized that the school was having a torchlight procession and coming to welcome us. Great is that recollection. They took the horses off and dragged the stage back to Lawrenceville and in and about the campus. It was not long before the whole school was singing the song of success that Turk Ryder had written. A big celebration followed. 
We did not break training because we had still another game to play. When Lawrenceville had beaten the Hill School 20-0, many of us realized that we had played our last game for Lawrenceville. George Cadwallader was shortly afterward elected captain for the coming year. It was at this time that Lawrenceville was overjoyed to learn that Gary Cochran, a sophomore at Princeton, had been elected captain of the Princeton Varsity. This recalled former Lawrenceville boys Pop Warren and Doggy Trenchard, who had played at Lawrenceville, gone to Princeton, and become varsity captains there. Snake Ames also prepared at Lawrenceville. I might incidentally state that we stayed at Lawrenceville until June to get our diplomas. Realizing that there were many able fellows to continue the successful traditions of Lawrenceville football, George Mattis, Howard Richards, Jack DeSaw, Cliff Bucknam, John DeWitt, Bummy Ritter, Dana Kafer, John Dana, Charlie Dudley, Hef Herring, Charlie Raymond, Biglow, the Waller Brothers, and others. End of chapter one.